Thank you, Adam, for uh, sharing our communion meditation this morning. You know, I, I just sit back sometimes and I think how how thankful I am for the young people we have in this church. Um, you know, I have other preacher friends that I meet with every month, and uh, that's not true everywhere. Uh, and I'm so impressed by the young men who have recently shared their communion thoughts with us and, and led us in our meditations. Thank you, guys, uh, all of you. We've also had some of our young women come up in recent uh, weeks and months you know, encourage us in the uh, community health fair that we'll be having at the end of the month and you know, the Crisis Pregnancy Center, CareNet, and uh, different things. And so we have a lot of young people in this church we need to be grateful for. We need to be, you know, pouring into their lives, investing in them personally and, uh, you know, collectively as a body of, of uh, believers here. For a smaller congregation, we are richly blessed, aren't we? Richly blessed. And uh, we've got some other ones heading off and, and preparing for their lives, too. Good to have Alyssa back uh, from college and uh, be here for the weekend. Let's uh, pray as we begin our study of the Word today. Uh, Lord, we just ask you that you would... Uh, Use these moments as we go to your word together to say something to each of us, to speak in a, a way that is uh, intelligible, a way that is clear, but also a, as challenging as your word could ever be, uh, because you are calling us to do something that sometimes is difficult, and you are charging us with a responsibility, a privilege, just to say the name Jesus. Bless us as we study your word together today, and help us to leave here with some kind of a renewed drive and boldness for the name of Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. You know, when I first decided to marry my wife, Jane, I could hardly wait for the day I was going to propose to her. We were in college, going to Milligan College, East Tennessee, and so I made plans to pop the question, I bought a ring much as I could afford at the time, a little tiny thing, a little more than a Cracker Jack thing. And when I asked Jane to marry me and she said yes, I felt I was the luckiest man on earth. And I couldn't hardly wait to tell other people, all my friends back on campus, I did it. You know, and she said yes, and we're going to get married someday. And we knew it was going to be some time off, but we we're both very excited. I even found ways to tell complete strangers what had happened. You know, you go shopping and you just tell the clerk. The clerk doesn't care that you just got engaged, but it was pretty exciting stuff. And I found out that when you love somebody, uh, you can't help telling other people about it. And I found out that Jane was about as excited as I was, maybe even more so. After all, you know, look at what she was getting, you know. <laughs> at least what she got back then. And... She had an advantage over me when she told other people because she had something on her hand that I didn't have, right? A ring. And so she, she would just you know, kind of proudly show that off. A lot of her friends and family members, you couldn't wait to see the ring. You know, it's a big moment when a couple gets engaged. And it was interesting to me that as we would go out after that, just walking around campus or going to lunch on campus or whatever, that somehow her left hand was always exposed, you know? It's kind of this amazing trick that she did, you know? And, and you get to lunch, you know, at the cafeteria, and her left hand would be out on the table just kind of prominently laying there <laughs> so people would see that ring. She was excited too, weren't you, Jane? <laughs> Sorry I didn't warn you I was going to do that to you this morning. And I discovered, you know, that when you're young or old, you find the love of your life 
you're glad to tell somebody whom you found. Shouldn't it be the same way with our love for Jesus? Shouldn't it be the same way when we come to know the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord? I think it should be at least that exciting. At least that memorable. At least that thrilling for us to tell someone else. That's why it's so strange that we who believe in Jesus talk so little about him. If he's as important as we say he is, then why are we hesitant to talk about our faith? You know, some, something just doesn't add up to me. Something doesn't, is just puzzling to me. More often than not, American Christians like us are pretty quiet about our faith. Pretty quiet about our relationship with Jesus, the Son of God. And he doesn't find his way into too many of our conversations, does he? And yet, I think we should be talking about him all the time. That's strange. I mean, when your heart is full of joy, you want to talk about the one who brings you joy. And when you found someone to fall in love with, you know, you talk about them. And if you've fallen in love with Jesus and what he's done for you, then why wouldn't you want to share with other people? So what's going on here? Why is it that we might honestly, if we're forced to, say, I believe in God, but I don't talk about Jesus? Why is that? But Christianity Today recently included an article by uh, Chris Lutz. It was called Seven Reasons Not to Share Christ. And uh, not that he wanted people to not share Christ, but he's saying these are the reasons, these are the excuses people give, as uh, uh, he called it here in his community meditation. Uh, he said this, I'm not smart enough. People say, in other words, you know, I, I don't have all the answers, so I'm not going to start a conversation that I can't finish. I am not smart enough. The fact is... Jesus' disciples weren't extremely brilliant either, were they? These were not theological geniuses. You know, these were not the cream of the crop, known for their brains, you know, and their intellect. Pretty ordinary guys, for the most part. And yet, these guys turned the world upside down because they were in love with Jesus. They were in love with Je what Jesus had done, and, and they were committed to what he had given them as their commission. Another reason people give, I don't want to make anybody mad. Well, now, that's understandable. You know, that's not what we're supposed to do is make people mad. And yet, we know some Christians do that. They're kind of annoying. You know, they've got this self-righteous attitude, and people get, you know, hot under the collar when they see that, and their kind of their condemnation or criticism comes down on them. Forget that, you know, and just leave kind of in a huff about it. But that's not what we're called to. Look at, look at Jesus' life. Did Jesus make people mad? Well, a few, but only the self-righteous ones. <laughs> Everyone else was drawn to Jesus. Everyone else loved to be around Jesus. And you know, everywhere he went, you know, he was mobbed. He was he, you know, crowded uh, of people just, just coming in on him all the time, wanting something from him, but just enjoying being with him as well. Most people are not going to get mad when you share love and grace with them. You know, really. Let's, let's be honest about that. How, how many people are going to make mad just because you love them? because you did wonderful things for them, and you sacrificed on their behalf. Another reason people give, my friends will make fun of me. Really? You know, are, are they going to make fun of you? Maybe a few, probably not your friends. Do you think maybe we're turning this fear into a bigger problem than it really is? Many people will actually respect us for our beliefs and for our convictions, and we clearly say, this is why I do what I do. This is why I live the way I live. And you'd be surprised how many people be willing to have a genuine conversation about Jesus if you just start talking about it 
Because maybe they're curious. Maybe they're wondering. Maybe they're uninformed. And they'd like to have some more information. Another reason people give, none of my Christian friends do it. Well, that may be true. But should it be true? <laughs> no. Maybe they just don't know where to begin. Maybe you could figure that out together. And maybe you could be the one that would take the lead in your circle of friends and start talking about Jesus. Be the first in your group to talk about Jesus. And maybe you'll influence your friends to do the same. So, you know, show some leadership there. Influence your friends. Motivate them to do the same. Fifth reason, I am not a very good Christian. I, I get that one. If you're feeling ashamed for how you're living, if you're feeling, you know, like to put yourself up in front of people as a Christian, you know, it's kind of hypocritical. You then, then you maybe you need to stop uh, some of the things you're doing, change that lifestyle by the power of God. But let me remind you of a very important thing. You don't need to be perfect to be a witness. You don't have to have your life all together. You don't have to have all the answers. You don't have to have all the, the lifestyle that matches perfectly with Christ because the whole point is God gave grace. God forgives. God cleanses. God makes whole. And God gives hope to the hopeless. And that's who we were. And sometimes we still have sin in our lives. Sometimes we still make mistakes. And a very powerful witness is a person who owns up to that. Who says the name of Jesus, talks about Jesus, but says, I'm so thankful for Jesus because I mess up. Because I make mistakes. And you're genuine. You're honest in that. And you can make a very strong witness to your friends when they know you're not perfect. You just need to be honest about your mistakes and tell them about God's grace. After all, isn't that what good news is all about. You're sharing the good news. You're not sharing perfection. Sixth reason, all of my friends are Christians. Well, that is a problem. <laughs> it's a big problem, so you got to do something about that. If the only people you're hanging out with are other believers, then you got to find a way to hang out with people who are not believers, people who are not yet Christians. You'd be surprised how many people would accept an invitation of yours to maybe hang out, maybe at a party, or maybe at a picnic, or maybe some other event where some of your non-Christian or your Christian friends are there, and together you can just have this nice, quiet influence in their lives. They see how Christians live in fellowship, and you'd be surprised how many people would actually in accept an invitation to church. When they do these surveys and polls of the American populace, they find out that a vast majority of people would accept an invitation if somebody just offered one. And yet we run around scared, you know, to even talk with a non-Christian. And we just hang out with Christians because that's so much easier. Final thing that, that Chris Lutz pointed out, I don't even know where to start. <laughs> Why not just start by inviting a non-Christian friend to church or to your small group or to your Bible study and, and then take them somewhere else with others that, that uh, believe in Christ. And, and as the conversation happens anytime, any day, See if there's some way that you can talk about your faith. Talk about what God is doing in your life right then. Just, just a, what we call a faith story. Lately, God's been doing this in my life. This is how God did something. This is how God protected. This is how God provided. It doesn't have to be the whole nine yards. You just say, here's my relationship with God. And it's a living, personal relationship with Him. And then you move on to the next item of conversation. Just be honest. Just be real. Just be you. 
So here's the problem. We get, we get all hung up with our qualifications and our credentials, or the lack of them. We say, well, I'm not the preacher, I'm not an elder or deacon, I'm not a Sunday school teacher, I don't have all the qualities or qualifications that someone else might have. I don't even have the gift of evangelism compared to somebody else. And we get hung up there, and we say, well, I can't say anything about Jesus then. We get way too hung up on knowing enough or being able to anticipate anything that someone might bring up in the conversation. You don't have to do that. You don't have to be the answer man or the answer woman. We get way too hung up worrying about and fearing things that probably will never even happen. And who teaches us to do that? It's the enemy. The enemy is saying, yeah, you know, better not say anything because you might go somewhere that you can't go. you you got to answer questions you can't answer or, or maybe understand things that you don't understand. And he he stops the opportunity for witnessing, for sharing our faith. Do you have a good friend that you can easily tell others about? Do you have a good friend in mind that is there for you all the time, a person that just stands by you, a person you enjoy being with, and so on? Do you tell others at times what that friend means to you? Do you talk about what they have done for you? Maybe they went out on a limb for you. Maybe they, they gave you something that you could not have gotten for yourself. They've done something for you that you just couldn't come through with on your own. Could you do the same with Jesus? Because after all, he's our best friend. In Matthew five thirteen through 16, Jesus said this, You are the salt of the earth, but if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on its stand and gives its light to everyone in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. And salt doesn't do you any good when it's in the salt shaker, does it? Okay, get it out of there. You've got to put it where it's needed, where it can do its desired effect, where it can have its impact. Salt is only good when it comes into contact with whatever needs its influence and its impact. Otherwise, it's no good. And so for us to sit back in our rooms or sit back in our churches and not be the salt that God has called us to be, we're missing the whole point of being salt in the first place. And light, you know, light is meant to be put up there where it can dispel the darkness. That's its very purpose. So you don't hide it. You don't, you know, keep flipping it off every time that, that it's like, you know, getting a little brightness and somebody say, whoa, what, what is that? There's darkness in our world and we're meant to dispel that darkness, to make things visible, to make God visible to others. Light needs to be put out there where it can do its thing. Are we really being the salt and light in the world that Jesus wants us to be? You know, I think our problem is sometimes is that we worry too much about the results of being salt and light. We just, we just hope for better results. We hope for better outcomes. And we feel somehow that we're in charge of those. You know, if I'm salt and I'm light, then there's going to be an effect. There's going to be a difference. And people are going to, it's going to be noticeable. And it's going to change lives. And, and so we're constantly analyzing that and evaluating that. We want to know. We want to even control the outcomes of our witness. But that's not even our business. That's God's business. Our business is simply to be salt. Our business is simply to be light. Let the light fall where it might. Where it might. Let the salt you know, be spread wherever it's needed. And God's in charge of whatever happens with that salt or light as it goes out there. Now, I want you to know, when I'm talking about this this morning, I'm not the expert with all the answers. I'm a preacher. 
I may have a little more experience than some of you in the area of witnessing and, and sharing faith. I've had a few conversations that went well and a few that didn't go so well and a whole bunch of in-between. And I'm not the expert. I don't always witness for Christ the way that I should. There are times when I hold back. And I remember some conversations when I was having with somebody I thought it was going to be a tough one. And I thought, I'm going to weave this in there somewhere. I'm going to find some way to talk to them about Jesus this day. This is the day I'm going to say it. And then I get in the conversation, I leave it, and Jesus never comes up again. The opportunity is missed. And I never followed through. I, I want to be very honest about this. I understand some of the struggle. I understand some of the, the introvertedness that some of us have. I understand the reasons that we might hold back so that we don't offend somebody or so that we don't feel, they feel criticized by us even bringing up the subject of God. But there's no excuse for those of us who love Jesus to not talk about Jesus. And we need to do it much more than we do. 1 Peter 3, the important passage. I hope you have it uh, kind of outlined in your Bible somewhere. 1 Peter 3, 13 through 16. Let's look at it together. Who's going to harm you if you're eager to do what is good? But even if you should suffer for what is right, you are blessed. Do not fear their threats. Do not be frightened. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect, keeping a clear conscience so that those who speak maliciously about your good behavior in Christ may be ashamed of their slander. And what Peter is saying here is, you know, you have someone that you clearly are living for here in Christ. In your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. In your conversation, revere Christ as Lord. In your lifestyle, revere Christ as Lord. Put Jesus first. Live for Jesus not for yourself, and then you don't have to worry about the results. You know, you're talking about suffering, talking about fear, being frightened, so on. All those things are kind of pushed to the side because you've made a clear choice that in your heart you're going to revere Christ as Lord. And then it gets into your conversation. Look down at verse 15. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. Someone recently pointed out to me there in verse 15 that really there's a condition put on this to begin with. It's this condition. Be prepared to give an answer to anyone who asks you. In other words, something in your life, something about your lifestyle, something about the way you live it, something about your attitude, something about the joy or peace that you have, something in your life stands out in, in stark contrast to theirs. And, and they're wondering, what is the difference? What, are, what do they have that I don't have? And so they ask the question, what is it? What is it that you have? What is it that I see in you? What, what is that? Because that's what I really want. One of my preacher friends has an atheist coming to his church. Absolute atheist. He's been an atheist his whole life. But what has grabbed that guy is that he sees something in this preacher and in others of the church that he never saw before. And he can't let it go. He's got to figure this out. So he's been about two months looking evaluating, wondering, what is this? What is this, this ingredient that they have that I have missed? This week I ran into a pointed illustration of this passage in Peter 3, and I want you to look in John 9 with me. John 9 is a story of Jesus healing a man born blind. And in John 9, we see this man coming to faith in Christ, and we see what it does for his life. Obviously, he sees. Never saw before in his life, and 
what a wonderful miracle that would be to suddenly see. But there's much more than this physical sight. It changes his life to meet Jesus. And so I want you to go down through John 9. If you have your Bible, or if you can find one in the, in the seat in front of you, pull it out and let's look at it together. Because we're going to actually look at this whole chapter together, John chapter 9. So we'll be parking here for a little while. You might as well get comfortable. You might as well read along. And think about some things. I want you to think about this man. I want you to think about the difference in his life that happened as Jesus met up with him, as Jesus brought sight to this blind man. He brought so much more. What is the un unraveling or, or the unfolding story of his life as, as things happen? What happens and how is he a witness for Christ when that day he never even thought he'd be able to see? All of a sudden, he's a witness for Jesus Christ. Let's read verses 1 through 9, John 9. As he went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Common misconception of people is if you got an illness, you got a problem, you must have done something wrong or your parents did something wrong. That's totally wrong. That's a wrong thought, but a lot of people think that way. Neither this man nor his parents sinned, Jesus said, but this happened so that the work of God might be displayed in his life. Jesus got some big things in store for this guy. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Jesus said that, but he also said to us, you are the light of the world, didn't he? Having said this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, pretty, pretty gross stuff, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him, and wash in the pool of Siloam. This word means sent. Interesting. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. He went there still blind with mud on his eyes, but he came back seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, Isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? And some claimed that he was. Others said, No, he only looks like him. Yeah, obviously, he's not the same guy. Look, he he's, sees everything. But he himself insisted, I am that man. I am the man. Our witness, as this man's witness, must first of all be personal. Others were asking him if he was the blind man they had seen. And some said, no, he's, he can't possibly. And he said, I'll make it clear to you. I'm the guy. I'm the same guy right here. I'm the man who was healed. I'm the man that can now see. I'm in the room. You're talking about me. Uh, <laughs> here I am. Verses 10 11. They asked him a question. How then were your eyes open? They demanded. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. He told me to go to Siloam and wash. So I went and washed, and then I could see. Now, his witness is responsive. He's responding to the people around him who are asking questions. How'd this happen? How'd you, how'd you have this change in your life? It's very obvious. You've seen when you were blind before. We saw you many times when you were blind begging for uh, gifts from other people. Now you're up free walking around seeing everything that we see. How'd that happen? And he responds to that and he says it was Jesus that did this. Later on in verse 15, which we'll read in a moment, the Pharisees ask him kind of the same question, don't they? And he gives a similar answer with even more information. Let's read 12 through 16. Where is this man? They asked him. He said, I don't know. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had been blind. Now the day on which Jesus had made the man and opened the man's eyes was a Sabbath. Therefore the Pharisees also asked him how he had received his sight. He put mud on my eyes, the man replied, and I washed and now I see. 
But others asked, how can a sinner do such miraculous signs? So they were divided. People didn't have the same ideas about Jesus as this man obviously did. Jesus healed him. They questioned how that could even be possible. Here his witness is very truthful. Where is this guy that did this for you? And he says, I don't know. You know, I'm not in charge of that. I, I didn't keep track of him. I couldn't even see him when I left him. I went down blind to the pool of Siloam. I came back seeing him. He's gone. He's not the same place where we were. And now he's gone. I don't know. I'm not in charge of him. But he honestly admits where he is, what he knows, what he doesn't know. That's also very important to us in our witness. They asked him where he had been healed and what had happened. And all he could say is, this is the man named Jesus put mud on my eyes and now I can see. There's no business in us trying to be better than we are or to pretend that we are. There's no business in you know trying to, to put on a mask or a front or, or convince somebody that we're the super Christian and they're not. We just honestly admit what we know and we don't know. Just be truthful. And you know, you know what I found is that takes the pressure off. When I was witnessing to somebody and I wanted to have all the answers and I was afraid they might ask the wrong question and I realized I don't have to have all the answers, that was very freeing. That was liberating. Because I can just say I don't know. What's wrong with saying that? This is what this man says. I don't know. And sometimes that's all it takes is for that, that, that witness to go a step further because now you're honest, now you're vulnerable, now you're humble. You don't have to have all the answers and it takes all that pressure off. Man, I've got to be ready for everything. You don't. Jesus is ready for everything, but you're not. I'm not. Let's go on. Verses 17 through 30. Big check, uh, section here. Finally, they turned again to the blind man. What have you to say about him? It was your eyes he opened. And the man replied, he is a prophet. The Jews still did not believe that he had been blind and received his sight until they sent for the man's parents. You know, Jews are really doubtful here. The, the, the leaders, they don't want to acknowledge anything Jesus had done as miraculous. Is this your son, they asked. Is this the one you say was born blind? How is it that now he can see? Well, we know he is our son. His parents answered, and we know that he was born blind, but how he can see now or how he... Who opened his eyes, we don't know. Ask him. He is of age. Let him speak for himself. His parents said this because they were afraid of the Jews, for already the Jews had decided that anyone who acknowledged that Jesus was the Christ would be put out of the synagogue. That is why his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So his parents threw him under the bus, in other words. They said, you know, we're not going to take the risk here. He's the guy that had it that happened to him. He's of age, ask him. And a second time, they summoned the man who had been blind. Give glory to God, they said. We know this man, pointing to Jesus, is a sinner. And he replied, whether he's a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, I was blind, but now I see. What a great answer, isn't that? Then they asked him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? And he answered, I've told you already. You did not listen. Why did you want to hear it again? Do you want to become his disciples too? Love that answer too. You know that, ooh, that that really got them irate. They hurled insults at him. They said, "You are this fellow's disciple. We are disciples of Moses. We know that God spoke to Moses, but as for this man, we don't even know where he comes from." Now listen to his answer. Now that is remarkable. You don't know where he comes from yet. He opened my eyes. <laughs> Wake up. You know who's the blind one now? He could have said. 
So I want you to see, here's a man who is very personal, he is responsive, he is truthful, and now he is very bold. Now he's growing in this witness to where he can be bold. He's in the face of the Jewish leaders who have already put it upon everybody. If you speak about Jesus, if you put faith in Jesus, you're out of here. He said, I'm going with Jesus because Jesus is the one that healed me. Jesus made the difference in my life, not you guys. I'll stand with Jesus. And he marveled that they kept wanting to hear his story again as if it would change. And he just started saying, do you want to become his disciple too? You know, kind of put it out there. Look at the spunk that he has. Look at the courage that he has. Let's go finish out the chapter together. Verse 31. They said to him, we know that God does not listen to sinners. He listens to the godly man who does his will. Huh. Yeah, right. Nobody's ever heard of opening the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. He's, he's pointing out Jesus is clearly from God, and they're, they're all just you know doubting what's right before them, right in, in their eyes. Jesus has performed a miracle, and they all miss it. And to this they replied, you were steeped in sin at birth. There goes back that old attitude. You got a problem. You were blind. You must have had sin. Parents were sinful. Something happened back there. How dare you lecture us, they said, and they threw him out. Listen to this part. Jesus heard that they had thrown him out. And when he found him, man didn't find Jesus. Jesus found him. Isn't that interesting? And he said to him, do you believe in the Son of Man? Here the man shows his lack of complete knowledge yet. Who is he, sir? The man asked. Doesn't get that, son of man. Tell me so that I may believe in him. And Jesus said, you have now seen him. <laughs> you couldn't see him before, but now you do, both physically and spiritually. In fact, he is the one speaking with you. And then the man said, Lord, I believe, and he worshipped him. Jesus said, for judgment I have come into this world so that the blind will see and those who see will become blind. Some Pharisees who were with him heard them say this, and he asked, what? Are we blind too? <laughs> and Jesus said, if you were blind, you would not be guilty of sin. But now that you claim that you could see, your guilt remains. Our witness finally must always glorify Jesus, not us. Man learned that when Jesus is from God. Jesus is a miracle worker of God. And when Jesus found him, he's still unclear about some things, uncertain about things, and Jesus clarified all that. He made it all clear, crystal clear to this man. And so he falls on his knees and he worships Jesus. The glory was not his, it was Jesus' glory. And so this blind man, his witness is just the occasion for Jesus to be glorified. That's all it is. And that's what your life is. That's what my life is. It's not about my glory. It's not about your glory for us to talk about Jesus it's for us to be the occasion where Jesus is glorified. The place, the circumstances, the people in which he's done something miraculous and supernatural. We become the occasion for God to be glorified. Like this blind man whom Jesus healed, we need to remember what Jesus has done for us. Remember the love that he's shown you. How he has, has gone out of his way to save you. Remember that he has protected you, that he has provided for you ever since you put your faith in him. He's been there constantly for you. Remember the many things he has done over and over again to bless you and to guide you ever since that day that you named Jesus as Lord and Savior. Remember, remember, remember. And maybe that's the problem. 
Maybe that's why we don't talk about Jesus, because we have a short memory. Because we don't remember what it was like to not know him. We don't remember how hopeless and, and uh, how, how uh, sad our life was, how discouraged we were. We don't remember what he's done for us, and we've just kind of taken that for granted now. It's become almost routine for us to walk in this blessing of God. We have forgotten. And maybe our hearts are not full of love as they should be, because we don't remember what God did for us by his love. If you're hesitant to share your faith, I want you to think about some of the other uh, un- unlikely evangelists we could call them in the Bible. In the New Testament, you know, we have this guy, the blind guy in John 9. John 4, we have the, the Samaritan woman at the well. You know, she's in a terrible life of sin. She's, she's, she's gone from one guy to another her whole life. She's with the guy that's not her husband, and uh, she meets Jesus, and Jesus is, is uh, you know, not not just confronting that; he's he's acknowledging that, making her aware of that, and owning up to that. But he's offering her new life, offering her something different, so much better than she'd ever known before. And so she runs back to town. She tells all of her her townsfolk, all her her friends, and people she knows, "Come out here to the well. There's a guy out here. Is he is he the one?" See the one we're looking for? And the whole town becomes followers of Jesus Christ because of this woman's witness. She's the most unlikely witness possible. But look what she did. as She just gave what she knew to the people around her. Or we go uh, to other people. In Mark 5, we have a demon-possessed man. And, and as Jesus heals him and you know, totally changes his life because he's, he's got a worse life than any of us ever had. And Jesus puts him in his right mind and sends him back home to his family they hadn't seen in a long time. And he says, as, you, as he goes, he says, tell everybody, tell your family what I did. Tell them what God did for you today. And the man is so excited uh, that his life has changed so much, he goes back, not only tells his town, but he tells nine other towns. Ten cities in that area, the Decapolis, are told about Jesus and the power of Jesus. Now, you can be a witness just where you are, whoever you are. You don't have to be super prepared, although 1 Peter 3.15 says, Be prepared, be ready to answer. If anybody asks a question, if they wonder what's going on in your life, why your life is different than this, have an answer. But just talk simply about Jesus. So often, what happens is we don't say anything because we think we have to have all the answers before we can even begin a conversation. But don't you believe it? Let me tell you that, that none of us will ever be fully prepared, if that's what you want to be, is fully prepared. Just go in there, shed the light, shake a little salt, and lives will change by the power of God. I have been over my head many times in conversations. I'll admit that. You're talking with somebody, I don't know all the things they know. I don't have answers for every question, but I found out I get out of that when I just say, you know, I don't know, but I will find out. I will, you know, let's talk again. And the conversation can continue. Share your faith. Talk about Jesus freely. It's really not that hard when, hard when your heart is full of love and gratitude. You know, yesterday, uh, the mail came to the house. Saturday, I'm home, and, and so I go out to get the mail from the mailbox, and usually, uh, you know, I just throw it on the table, don't really look at it. Jane goes through all that stuff, and anything important there that I need to see, she'll, she'll tell me about it. I noticed on top was our mortgage bill from Wells Fargo, and I would not normally want to look at that, nor would you, probably. But 
recently our conversation had been is we're getting to the end of this mortgage before long. When is that? I don't don't remember when it is, but it's it's in the next couple years, isn't it? And after paying mortgages, as many of you have done for a long time, like 40 years or so of mortgages, it's pretty neat to think that someday that's going to end. Exciting, isn't it? So I opened it up, and I read there that it's next February is the end of our note. Less than a year from now. And, man, I was excited. You know, I, I, I ran upstairs. I said, hey, look here, Jane. We were wondering when it was going to be. And next month when you pay it, it's the last time you're going to pay a bill in March. Next time you pay in April, it's the last time you're going to pay this thing in April. All the way through the year until we get to the end of this thing, and we're going to say, we're zeroed out. It's done. Now, I'm not bringing that up to make you feel bad. <laughs> Although you probably do. <laughs> oh, my goodness. we got 20 years to go. we got 29 years out of a 30-year note to go. I don't know where you are. I'm not bringing it up for that. I'm bringing it up to encourage you. There's an end to that. It'll come. If you're faithful and you know, manage and be good steward and everything. That time will come, and, and you'll be free and clear of that one. Hopefully free and clear of every debt, as we learn in the financial peace class to do that. But I bring it up for this reason. Why am I so excited about paying off a house that in a few years will be gone? And not nearly as excited about a mansion that Jesus is preparing for us. Something's wrong. Something needs to be fixed. Something needs to change. And I believe that's the whole attitude shift that all of us need to have right now. Because we are too much of this world, too much in this world. Even though we're living for Christ and we're trying to tell others about Christ. and That's my job. That's what I do all the time. But in a moment like this, you realize what brings you joy and what uh, makes you want to share good news with somebody else. It's what God has done. It's what Jesus means to me and what he means to you. And I want to encourage you this morning to, to share your love with the people that need him. If you love Jesus, then tell people about him. Spread Jesus' name everywhere you go. I'm going to invite everyone today, uh, if they will, if you're a believer, if you're a follower of Christ, to make a, a movement during our song as we share together at the end. Normally we just ask if you need prayer, if you need uh, to share a decision, you come up front, there will be people here to receive you. We're going to put uh, some of our leaders at each of the four corners of this room. And as a believer in Christ, if you need to reaffirm your faith, if you need to rededicate yourself to talking about Jesus, if you need people to pray with you and for you about that, we're going to invite you to go one of those four corners and share in a time of prayer. Uh, we're going to pray. We're going to invite our musicians to come up while we pray. We're going to sing, and we'll, we'll have time of prayer together. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you would uh, uh, just be on our hearts right now as... as uh, we know that, that you want to encourage us. You want to um, uh, give us uh, a jolt of boldness and, and courage to speak the name of Jesus, to freely talk about our love for him. And uh, we pray that in these next few minutes together that we would be able to, to receive that from you and that we would go out of here with a, a boldness that we've not had in a long time and the clarity of what is really the reason for that and, and the joy of even knowing him and of what he has given us. Help us to not go out the same way we came in. 
as we pray to you and as we seek your heart together. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand with me, please? We're going to sing, My Heart is Yours. And if that's true, and if you want to uh, share the witness, share your knowledge, your awareness of Jesus, the love that you have for Jesus with others, and you want to be bold in that, find one of these corners and pray with some others like that today. Let's, let's sing together.